Welcome to Healthcare Rounds, the podcast serving you the ins and outs of health policy and business topics, as well as our take on the rapidly evolving healthcare delivery ecosystem. I'm your host, John Marchica, CEO of Darwin Research Group and faculty associate at the W.P. Carey School of Business and the College of Health Solutions at Arizona State University. This week, I'm talking to two of my very good and old friends from the Dartmouth Institute, uh, Dave Radley and Trafford Crump. David Radley is a senior scientist for the Commonwealth Fund's Tracking Health System Performance Program. Dr. Radley and his team develop national, state, and sub-state regional analyses on healthcare system performance and related insurance and care system market structure analyses. He is also a senior study director at Westat, a research firm that supports the Scorecard Project. Dr. Radley received his bachelor's from Syracuse University, a master's in public health from Yale, and a PhD from Dartmouth College in health policy and clinical epidemiology. Trafford Crump is a health services researcher and assistant professor at the University of Calgary's Department of Surgery with an interest in patient-centered measures. Dr. Crump's earlier research involved developing the methods for eliciting healthcare preferences from community-dwelling Medicare beneficiaries in the United States. His more recent research has expanded into linking primary data collected from patients with large administrative data sets made by regional and provincial health authorities. Dr. Crump is part of a University of British Columbia-led research team that has undertaken one of the largest systematic collections of patient-reported outcomes in Canada. Dr. Crump received his doctorate from Dartmouth College in the field of the evaluative clinical sciences, followed by a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of British Columbia. I'm uh, here talking to Trafford Crump and Dave Radley, two very good friends of mine. I met Dave and Trafford, I want to say 2004 in the winter of that year, when I was first looking at Dartmouth they showed me around and introduced me to the program, and then I got to know them throughout. Uh, so I should say up front, too, that whatever we talk about today, uh, the opinions expressed by Dave and by Trafford do not reflect their organizations. They're their own personal opinions. Dave, why don't you kick us off and tell us a little bit about your background and the kind of research that you're focused on? Sure. First, before, before I do that, though, I, I do want to just add a little bit to how we met, how Trevor and I met John. Full disclosure, I think John's a great guy. And I'm glad I got a chance to meet him. But in full disclosure, I agreed to meet him because... because I thought that was your full disclosure, was that you thought he was a great guy. Yeah, no, <laughs> well, maybe. But the, the reason why I, I agreed to sort of show him around was it included a free meal. And as a PhD student, anything <laughs> you can get for free, you take, right? Right. This was... Build as, hey, who wants to show the new guy around and get some free food out of it? And I know I raised my hand, Trafford raised his hand. Nice. And the rest is history. Anyway, what do I do? So um, my name is David Radley. I am the senior scientist at the Commonwealth Fund, which is a philanthropic foundation based in New York that supports health policy research. And I'm also a senior study director at Weststat, contract research firm based in Rockville, Maryland, that does research primarily on behalf of different federal agencies, some state agencies and, and some foundations. My work is, I guess, best characterized by saying that I, I evaluate health system performance 
I have a feeling John's going to ask me what that means, and, and so we'll, we'll get into it. But I do a health system performance evaluation. For the Commonwealth Fund, I run their healthcare tracking initiative, where we look at the performance of the national healthcare system uh, and state healthcare systems. We've been doing this for about 10 years, and it's fun work, but it's a lot of quality measurement, a lot of uh, medium-sized data analytics, and... I guess that's about it. What's the URL for that really cool website where you can go by HR hospital referral region or by, I think, uh, is it NSA or by state? Anyway, see how you compare to others. Sure. So that's just one of the sort of interactive data visualization tools that we've built uh, at the Commonwealth Fund. I think I think the one you're probably referring to, John, is the one that we call our Quality Spending Interactive. Yeah. What that does is it, it sort of plots your hospital referral region, you know, which you can basically think of as being a healthcare market or, or you know a city uh, or state uh, on a on an interactive scatter plot where the y-axis is you know that region's performance uh, on quality. The the x-axis is that region's performance on cost, and so you can see where that region falls relative to other places. And it's it's interactive. You can choose different quality metrics. You can choose whether you're looking at Medicare or commercially insured populations. It's a really neat tool, but it's just one of a whole bunch of really neat tools that that we've developed. And so if you go to the to www.commonwealthfund.org. And search around there for the the section for data visualization and interactives. Uh, you'll find all of our all of our tools. Cool, cool. Yeah, and I recommend that folks check that out. Trafford, you're a returning guest. Last time we talked about Canadian healthcare, which I think is our second most downloaded podcast. It's very popular. Nice. So, talk a little bit about your background, the kind of work that you're focused on. Yeah, well, I'm currently uh, an assistant professor at the University of Calgary's Department of Surgery at the Cummings School of Medicine. And a lot of my research focuses on, I also have an adjunct appointment in the Department of uh, Electrical and Software Engineering. And so a lot of my research focuses on delivering more effective and efficient clinical encounters and how we leverage technology to do that, to collect, analyze, and interpret data uh, that can inform physicians and patients and their shared decisions. So that's uh, that's kind of what I do. Not nothing nearly as sexy as Dave's. <laughs> well, we all have a different perspective, and I think it's kind of cool that we you know, started off. Obviously, I was behind you guys. In, in the program, but we started off having learned a set of common things and then went off into our different areas. And so I'm thinking that today is going to be pretty interesting. Each week, we do an email that goes out to health system executives and pharma execs and some other folks. And the format, if you listen to this podcast, you already know what it is because I do a read-in every other week of what we wrote. And it's sort of like the, the front half is the front half, five, six hundred words is the hottest healthcare topic of the week from my perspective. And then a few other blurbs on what we think you should know. But in the first section, it it's really gives me an opportunity to give my opinion. And it's very clear there where it says our take that it's editorial. But I also try to back up 
with whatever the topic is with some facts. So that's the background. Last week, we did a story on drug prices in being required to be put in TV ads, which I thought was one of the most idiotic um, policy proposals that I'd seen in a while. You you made that pretty clear in the email. Yeah, Yeah, I did. I did. (laughs) Um, and, and, And I should also say that I don't talk politics. I don't write about politics. I don't, I don't go down there. First of all, it's bad for business because some people have some pretty strong views. So anytime I'm writing about something that has to do with a policy or a healthcare reform, I'm always very careful about how something might come across, even if I'm being you know a bit snarky or strong in my writing. So I, I came in the office on Monday and somebody had sent me an email, one of our readers, that said, your anti-Trump biases come through loud and clear on a regular basis. And yeah, right then and there, I, I was so annoyed. I would agree with that, though. You, you would agree with that? Oh, totally. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, taking the other side. I guess my, my question is, you know. Did you write the email, Trafford? No, it didn't come from Trafford. <laughs> uh, P.U., Mr. Crump. So why, why can't we have a healthy debate about health care in this country? I mean, it's going back to Hillary Care. I guess you could say even going back to when Medicare was first established and Ray, Ronald Reagan's comments about it being socialism. Why is health care such a politically charged issue? And by the way, before you answer, if you read the Artake, you know that very often what I end up writing about, I go off and I meander in all these different ways, <laughs> may not necessarily be related to the topic. Uh, so I didn't want to talk about politics here, but I just wanted to get this one out of the way up front and get your guys' thoughts. What's the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, for example, the, the Medicaid expansion. And the, politiz- the politicization of healthcare, politicization, I can't say that word. I mean, the states that needed it most are the ones that opted out. So yeah. how do we, I guess the question is, what makes healthcare so politically charged? And can we get out of this environment where we can talk about policy without having it be a, a Trump idea or an Obama idea? What makes it politically charged, it's, I, you know, I think it... I, Everything is politically charged these days. And maybe that's, you know, so unique, healthcare is not unique in that sense. Healthcare has been, politi- I guess maybe where, where, you're, where you're coming from, though, is that healthcare has sort of been a politically charged issue long before sort of the current era of, 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 of political tribalism, right? So why historically has it been so political? You know, I, I, that's a great question. And... I, I, when I when I when I think about when it be started to become really political, it started to become really political after World War II, when uh, I think it was Truman was put in advocating for a national health care program, similar to what what uh, they had established uh, in, in in England. And I, I guess people who were opposed, part of the reason why they justified being opposed to it was because it felt very communist, it felt very Soviet, and th- that was something that we clearly didn't want to be, uh, you know, in the, the in the 1950s. And to me, that's you know, if I think back on the history of it, that's when healthcare started to become a really political issue, and it, you know, it's only gotten worse from there. And, and I imagine we'll, we'll get into it, but but I think if I had to put a pin in, in where it started, that's where I think that's for me where where it seems to 
started to take on sort of this political life. Yeah, and it's it's not unique to to the United States by any means. Certainly in Canada here, there's a lot of politics that motivate healthcare policy. And as I'm sure most of your listeners will know, John, that here in Canada, we have kind of a universal universal healthcare system. And even, even with that different kind of payer mechanism, it's still highly politically charged in terms of how we should structure delivery, what should be included or excluded from that bundle of care that's paid for by the government, to what extent payers or physicians should be paid. So, you know, these are all politically charged issues that regardless, like even if you take the, the insurance part out of it, come into play. I mean, economics is about scarcity, right? And in our elected system of government, we have people who vote on things that have to do with allocation of scarce resources, and healthcare is one of those things. That makes sense, and the Truman thing makes sense. What doesn't make sense to me is why a discussion, maybe a, a full, forceful discussion of why drug ads are a bad idea and TV ads, why that would encourage somebody to say that I'm anti-Trump. It's just, I don't know. As Trafford and, and you were sort of talking, it, it got me thinking a little bit about how complicated healthcare is. And when people see something complicated, they tend to try to, people tend to be sort of pretty reductionist in, in their view. And they try to, you know, sort of simplify it down to, you know, something that they can get their heads around. Uh, and this is this is bigger picture about healthcare than not just about about the the the, the Trump drug uh, proposal because we tend to be sort of reductionist in the way that we think about sort of big problems and, and get them down to something small that we can get our heads around. You you want to assign that smaller nugget to some you have to assign it to, to something that that's relatable, right? So I, I think that's why you tend to take something really big like healthcare. People think about it in as sort of a small terms as they can. And then they assign it to, in this case, whatever, you know, sort of political leader is the, the leader, you know, at the time when, when, or the one that made the proposal or, or whatever. So here, here's, here's an example of what I'm talking about. Not that a couple of years ago, I wrote a paper that looked at prices for, you know, premium costs for, for, uh, for commercial health insurance plans, for you know, employer-sponsored plans, we looked at the total cost. We looked at the employer contribution, and we looked at the employee contribution. And you know, it was a paper. You, you, you can you can find it. But when I was talking with a neighbor about what I did, and and got talking because I just published this paper, so I got talking about this recent analysis that I that I just did. That person went off on me, and I hadn't mentioned. You know, a political anything. I simply said we looked at the cost of health insurance premiums. This person went off on me about how Obamacare raised his insurance premiums, and I asked him, you know, where do you get insurance? Oh, I get it from my 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 work. And I go, oh, well, that's interesting because if your health insurance premiums are going up because of your work, it's much more likely that they're going up because you know hospital prices are going up or because there's really no no check on the prices that anybody charges and the insurance firms just you know pass that back down to you and and that really has nothing to do with politics and keep in mind this was actually before for example all of the uh, the coverage expansions uh, with the ACA uh, happened and he just went off and he turned it into a political thing and 
again, I think it's because he didn't really have the context to sort of be able to talk about healthcare prices and or hospital prices and 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 you know market consolidation and, and how all of those factors are actually affecting people's premiums. He didn't have that context. What he had was a health insurance premium bill in front of him and somebody to blame in Obama because that's who everybody was blaming for for healthcare for for whatever healthcare policies they didn't right. like. And and he, you know he just reduced it down to the, basically those two nuggets. Higher premiums, Obama, because because it's such a complicated thing. He just didn't have the context to be able to sort of understand, you know, what's actually making the premiums go up. Yeah, as our president said, who knew how complicated healthcare is? Yeah, I like the two of you. I spend pretty much so all day every day reading or writing about healthcare policy related stuff or business related stuff. And sometimes I come in and I'm and I'm like, and I know that I know something, but sometimes I come in and I'm like, I don't know anything. <laughs> you know, it's there's so much to know. There's so many different things to know about even, you know, the affordability of healthcare delivery, let's let's say. There's so many different factors. So I, I get what you're saying. And I you know, I just wish that our elected officials could talk about these things with a little bit more reason and could get more done rather than have one side. I mean Literally, really, they're not going to defend the ACA. So that what? That's going to go ultimately to the Supreme Court? Uh, anyway, I want to get to value. So we're going to change the subject. If people haven't already changed to another podcast by now. <laughs> we have something called the Darwin Value Index. And it's our model for describing where a health system, where like an IDN, like a Geisinger or a Kaiser is on the spectrum from fee to service to value. And of course, that presupposes that we're moving moving toward a value-based or outcomes-based uh, system. And it, on its own, it, it's not particularly useful. It's more, it's, it's a helpful index when you're comparing two health systems. Then you can say, oh yeah, it makes sense that why that one is farther along than the other. Dave, I, I know that you're interested in hospital performance and health systems. And so... I wanted you to speak to the topic of talk, talk a little bit about value, but how you define a high performing health system. Sure. So I'm certainly interested in what's going on at hospitals, but I, I don't think of systems the way that you're describing them, John. Um, you know, I, I certainly something like a a Geisinger, you know, an integrated delivery system. Those are systems for sure. But when I think about the system, and, and when I'm talking about system performance in my own work, I'm really talking about sort of the larger context where healthcare happens. And, and I tend to sort of focus around a state level. So you know, healthcare happens within a state. The state with help from the federal government, sort of creates an environment for healthcare to happen. But but we're also talking not just about healthcare delivery, but we're talking about healthcare access, the policies that make healthcare more or less accessible uh, in states. We're talking about some of the um, social safety net types of things that happen in states that have a big impact, for example, on, on people's outcomes, you know, separate from the healthcare delivery system. So things like social determinants of health, really talking sort of bigger picture. So for me, you know, an integrated delivery system is sort of, it's a system within the context of a much larger system where healthcare happens as sort of just one piece of the puzzle to promoting better health. So when I think about, uh, in, in my, my, the evaluation work that I do is in system performance, you know, I'm, again, I'm thinking bigger picture. So we take a look at things like 
you know, at the state level, uninsured rates in states, we take a look at different types of premature mortality within states. Again, a lot of this is tied to delivery system, but a lot of that premature mortality is tied to environmental factors. We certainly look at sort of traditional healthcare quality metrics. We look at, you know, avoidable ED use, unsafe prescription drug use, sort of, you know, whole list of 40 or so uh, performance metrics that sort of fall into the category of traditional healthcare quality HEDIS type of thing uh, that people sort of think of when they think of quality quality measures. But we always sort of combine that with the, the bigger system stuff, the policy stuff, to try to come up with a more holistic view of, of what healthcare looks like in the state or that we're even starting to do some sort of larger regional work now. Okay, so that makes sense. So you would look at something like the state of Maryland model and how how is that performing? Or you would look at what is the Northern California market look like versus the Southern California? I mean, it's almost like two states, right? I mean, how in terms of hospital density and phys- versus physician groups, payer dominance, things like that. Are those things you look at or are we back to social determinants and other things? Sure. So we're certainly interested in what's going on in Maryland. Their transition to global budgeting is certainly something to keep worth keeping an eye on. It certainly makes Maryland stand out as a, as a great comparison case for other states that are trying different types of sort of policy uh, innovation. To come back to your, your question you know, with the, the, the Northern versus Southern California comparison, we don't look within states performance very often. We've done a little bit of work to look at within state variation at the HRR level. But the reality is, is we always get a lot of pushback when we try to, you know, write off of these local comparisons because local is so hard to define. And and what what I call local is not what people and other, you know, people that are there call local. And and it's so hard to get that right. And it, we've we found that we just don't get any traction with with doing the the within state work. And so we've sort of let that you know, you know fall off a little bit. So are you are you looking at systems or states? Are you tracking the same, you know, so called movement to value? Is that something that you're looking at or is that not part of your not on your radar? We have a lot of measures that would, I think, allow us to, to to speak to the movement towards value. We don't write as probably as prolifically about it as we should. We, we tend to focus a little bit more on some of the access and, and, and outcomes. I think there's there's a lot more we could do, even with the data that we collect and report on. I think there's a lot more we could do to sort of write about the shift to value. Some of the measures that, that come to mind that we track, you know, we certainly have some measures that sort of fall into traditional sort of definitions of what people think about as being like low value care, for example. You know, we look at the percentage of newly diagnosed patients with with low back pain and how often they're getting, you know, an MRI within 30 days of, of diagnosis or something like that. And, and some of these measures that have sort of been established as, as being indicators of, of, of low value care. We look at the use of emergency rooms essentially as a substitute for primary care. And we track that for different populations. We track that for Medicare. We track that for the commercially insured population. And those are really interesting measures. We don't say enough, I don't think, uh, in our writing about those. And so that's probably something we're going to have to spend a little bit more energy uh, doing um, as as the scorecard work uh, progresses. Well, as it relates to that, and I I was going to ask this first, the question to both of you is, is how do you even, how do you define value? I got into like a 20-minute conversation with uh, 
system executive the, uh, last week over the same question because I asked him something very general about their how he how he felt about their move to value based care, and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, what do you mean define value-based care? And then he gave me like six definitions. <laughs> so for you guys, what what is what does that mean? Define value. I just use kind of the Porter model where he looks at value across the episode of care and compares the or looks at the ratio of, of cost to, to outcomes, specifically patient reported outcomes. That's that's kind of how I've always interpreted uh, value. As it relates to patient-reported outcomes. So that's your thing, right? I would say Porter, like, his focus is not just on, although he uses patient-reported outcomes as the measure, it's, it's not strictly limited to, to patient outcomes. I mean, he uses patient-reported outcomes as being the, uh, the ultimate kind of outcome of, upon which healthcare should be measured. That sounds like patient satisfaction. No, whoa, whoa, whoa. No. <laughs> well, I mean, just the way that you said that, it sounds like, you know, people are happy with their health care. You know, I work with I work with physicians who uh, call the patient satisfaction, the, the, uh, the CAP survey, you know, the parking lot survey, because it really measures right. how patients felt about the, the cost of, of the out-of-pocket cost of care, you know, what it costs them to show up to the parking lot, pay, pay their, uh, their fee and get out. Uh, a lot of which is outside their, their domain of influence. But no, the patient reported outcomes really has more to do with quality of life, symptom severity, functional status, that kind of thing. Uh, things that relate specifically to what we would consider the, the, the desirable outcomes of, of care. So I think you just answered this question, but uh, a, a, a pre-written down question that I had was, uh, are patient-reported outcomes important when assessing, actually, it probably should be, how important are patient-reported outcomes when assessing uh, a health system or the way that I use that term or Dave uses the term, the performance of that system? Yeah, I think, I think they are the ultimate outcome that you want to measure. When you go to McDonald's and you get a burger, how happy are you with that burger? That's ultimately what they want to know. And as a, a healthcare delivery system, how happy are, are patients with their their quality of life, with their symptom severity, with their functional status? Those are the the kind of questions that I think that healthcare is intended to a, address. And the service or, or, or the care that we're, we want to be paying for. Can you talk to, or is it premature? I know that you have a paper that's coming out related to patient reported outcomes. Can you talk to the sort of general thesis of that work that you do with, um, I almost said Jason Bateman, but who, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your research partner, what's his name? Sorry. Jason Southern. So we're uh, we we've we've done a lot of work with measuring patient reported outcomes in elective surgical care, and we're now starting to compare that to to the costs of delivering care. And I think going back to one of the comments that Dave made about Maryland and and the move towards global budgeting, I find it kind of funny that uh, the United States 
is moving to global budgeting and, and Canada is trying to move more towards activity-based funding in terms of how they deliver their, their hospital-based care. Because depending on which side of the fence you're looking at, you're always thinking like the other guy has a, the, the, the greener lawn. You know, we, we are looking at how can we allocate our global budget to better reflect the higher value surgeries, specifically the higher value elective surgeries. And we're doing that because we have to manage our resources. When you move to a global budget, inevitably you're going to restrict access to those to to patients who need lower value surgery and we need to understand and and be able to prioritize which surgeries which surgical interventions deserve having more resources allocated to them therefore more patients treated and and their wait lists shortened and that's difficult both because uh it's it's not like everybody on the wait list is homogeneous. There's a lot of heterogeneity on the on the wait list, both in terms of their patient reported outcomes and and how they're suffering and and what they're dealing with, uh, and also in terms of their how they'll react or how they'll um, their their outcomes to the surgery. So those are the, some of the things that Jason and I are exploring, and and we're trying to better understand how under a global budget system, you could manage what is a finite amount of resources within sort of infinite expectations. I don't think that there's been enough discussion. I remember this is at least three years ago, I was at a conference, stolen the slide, but Mark McClellan was presenting on you know risk and I think he was talking in the context of ACOs, but then just in general that Everything in Medicare is being pushed to, a, you know, effectively capitation, and nobody seems to be talking about the problems that you have to address when you're dealing with global budgets or when you're dealing with a capitated model. When I say no one, I, I, I don't think it gets a, enough discussion in the popular press, you know, about where healthcare is and where 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 it's going to better inform the public. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think that what's left out of the popular press is that, that people don't understand healthcare pricing. And, you know, even people who, who do this for a living, you know, I have a PhD in, in healthcare policy and I don't understand healthcare pricing. What I do know is that when you, when you look at utilization over the last five years, it's been pretty flat. And when you look at healthcare spending over the last five years, it's gone up dramatically. And spending equals price times quantity, right? And, and if quanti quantity is staying basically the same, then prices have to be driving total spending. And, we, and we're not paying enough attention um, to, to prices. I mean, we pay a little bit of, of attention to prices when it comes to pharmaceuticals. And that's certainly getting some press right now. And, and, and certainly with the, 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 the policy debate that, that you seem to be engaged in, John, yeah. <laughs> uh, with your with your listeners, but but people aren't talking about the real pricing problems um, and and sort of the consolidation of provider networks, the sort of ineptitude of insurers when it comes to actually negotiating reasonable prices for the most part. I think there's a few a few exceptions when you look across the country, and what happens is you know prices go up and insurers pass those prices back on to their to their enrollees in the forms of higher premiums. There's not a huge incentive for incentive for insurers to actually negotiate lower prices and nobody's paying enough attention to sort of the rate at which 
prices for healthcare services, pharmaceuticals aside, the prices for healthcare services are rising dramatically. And that is, I think, the biggest problem right now. And I don't see it as a political issue. You can be on either side of the political spectrum and certainly recognize that that healthcare pricing is a big problem. Now, now your your policy solutions for dealing with it may differ depending on what side of the political aisle you're on. But, but there's really no denying that that's a big problem. And that's really what's driving, you know, higher overall healthcare so spending. You, the, and 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 subsequently it's it's what it's what makes us talk about, you know, to come back to your original question, John, is what makes us talk about things like capitation and global budgets, right? If we weren't spending so much on healthcare, then we wouldn't have to have that conversation. But we're spending a lot on healthcare, so we're having that conversation. And the reason we're spending so much is because of prices. So we're we're seeing the same thing in Canada as well. Costs are on the rise. And these costs are in part driven by pharmaceuticals, but largely and for the most part driven by payments to physician to care providers, physicians, nurses, these are the big cost drivers in our system right now. And so I don't think it's unique to the American system where it's, uh, you know, multiple insurance agencies, that kind of thing. It's, it's really the stakeholders who are driving uh, the cost of care. Yeah, I, I, let, me, let me clarify something. I, I don't think that insurers are the reason why prices are high. I think that prices are high because healthcare providers get away with charging whatever they want, in part because there, there's no re, sort of real entity to, to, to sort of enter into negotiations on price. So I, I don't think insurers are the cause of high prices. I just think they're not doing enough to combat it because they don't have to because they can, they can pass those charges on it, uh, in the form of higher prices. Yeah, Dave, I wanted you to expand on because about five minutes ago, you just blew by really quickly on why healthcare prices are going up. So I wanted you to Take that a, a little slower and explain to people for your sense of why why those prices are increasing, and you know that just a, a subtle point. I mean, we're we're using two different terms. There's there's price, and then there's cost, and they're, they're not they're not the same thing, right? So it's price in my mind is you know what I can charge, and cost is ultimately you know what they're paying for it. I, I think. In some markets, maybe you'll address this, Dave or, or Trafford. In some markets where insurers, let's say, dominate, and you know the the health systems themselves might not, or the providers don't have a lot of power. In those cases, maybe the insurers are wielding more power and raising prices and and benefiting from that. Anyway, back to you, Dave. First of all, absolutely. I totally agree that prices are not the same as costs. I tend to use cost and spending as as synonyms, but prices and quantity are the factors that sort of feed into that that total cost, right? So cost equals price times quantity. That's the basic formula. And so the more widgets you if you know if if you have a widget that's $10 and you have 10 of them, then that's $100. And, and, and if you want to make more money, if you're the widget salesman, and if you want to make more than $100, you can either create more widgets or you can raise the price. And so to come back to, to you know, what seems to be sort of driving the rise in healthcare spending, okay? Healthcare Cost Institute, they've done some really interesting work on the commercial side. Uh, this, is, this excludes Medicare, of course. But on the commercial side, they've done some really interesting work over the last couple of years to show 
how prices have been going up. And so, so if you're interested, I would say take a look, you know, for your listeners, take a look at some of the work of the Healthcare Cost Institute, particularly their 2018 uh, annual report, uh, I think is, is probably the most apt sort of recent report that they've done that, that would show this. But what you see when you look at that, for, for people with, with employer-sponsored insurance, sort of utilization per person has been flat over the last five years. Certainly things like knee replacements are happening, but the rate of knee replacements isn't going up, or at least it isn't growing up, going up in sort of uh, meaningful ways. But we know that total healthcare spending is going up dramatically. And so if spending is going up dramatically and utilization is staying relatively flat, then what's left over, the, what's the, the, the thing that's right, that, that's sort of driving the increased spending has to be price. There's, there's nothing else that it can be. I mean, if we come back to our simple equation of you know price times quantity, right? So in this report, they'll break down, and this is why I encourage your readers and listeners to, to take a look at it. They break down the uh, utilization and, and price for different settings of care, for inpatient, for outpatient, for pharmaceuticals, for I think even post acute, if I'm remembering correctly, and they'll break down that 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 utilization versus price and how each is contributing to the overall spend for the last five years on, on a commercially insured you know population of people with employer sponsored insurance. It's really fascinating work, but anyway, that that's that's where I see the biggest problem right now, and 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 that, that's what I'm talking about, where it's those prices that are going up, which is one of the primary drivers of overall spending. And so what you're saying is in reality, if, if you look at that, that data, that it's the providers that dominate that set prices that are charging to use your, your, uh, your words, you know, whatever they want. They can just keep pushing those prices up. They can keep pushing those prices up because in a lot of markets, there's just not an effective check against against providers rising prices. Absolutely. A lot of healthcare markets are across the country are dominated by large national insurers. I'm not going to name any names, but the national insurers, they don't often have a huge, a, a large enough stake in how well any particular community functions to, to really spend a lot of energy negotiating lower prices in that community. Um, not to mention some of the large national insurers, you know, they've, they've got to try to manage, you know, you know, 3,000 uh, county level markets that they're selling in across the country. And so it, it's hard for them to sort of, I think, be really effective price negotiators. In markets where you have really dominant local insurers, uh, or, or, you know, a dominant is not quite the right word. I think um, local insurers with a lot of, of, of market influence, they can do a much better job. And, and I think this, this bears out in the data. They can do a much better job of, of sort of pushing the envelope on, on how well they can negotiate with the local providers. I, I think the one of the the sort of classic at this point, classic examples of of of, of how we we saw this play out is with Massachusetts, the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts and their alternative quality contract. The dominant you know, healthcare providers in the Boston market, uh, in particular, uh, you know, Partners Healthcare, Beth Israel, they for a long time were viewed as must have health systems in any insurance product that was sold in Massachusetts. And I mean, you know, who in Massachusetts, who, who, when they get sick, wants to be told they can't go to, you know, Mass General or to Brigham and Women's. They, they don't want to be told that, right? So, you know, partners in particular was really considered this, this must-have 
network in Massachusetts. And so the insurers in Massachusetts, when they were trying to sort of narrow their networks or, or come up with different strategies to try to you know, rein in costs, they were having a really hard time defining sort of more narrow networks without some of these big dominant providers. And so Blue Cross Blue Shield started to say, look, we have a huge market share in Massachusetts on the commercial side, and we're going to, we're going to, you know, for any doc or any provider rather, it wasn't just docs and included the big systems, but any provider that, that wants to engage with us as a payer, you're going to have to engage in this new quality measurement and in, in, in this new sort of value-based healthcare payment program. And by and large, it was a success. I don't, I'm not going to remember the, the, the savings and everything off the top of my head. There's, there's, there's a lot written about it in the literature. But I think it was a great example of how a local insurer who did have a fair bit of sort of market sway was able to push back a little bit on price in you know one of the most pro- prolific uh, healthcare markets in the country. Yeah, that's a fascinating case study. I wasn't aware of that, but I guess I'm not reading my literature carefully enough. <laughs> It's interesting. And I think about back in the day, back when we were studying about what might be coming in the form of the Affordable Care Act, that's going back a lot of years. And then to see where we are today, the kind of progress that we've made. Have we made progress? Trafford, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's interesting to be an outsider watching the experiments unfold because a lot of healthcare system takes their cues from the American, at least from the from the CMS perspective. We do pay attention to what's going on down there, what innovations, and, and certainly with the amount of money you guys spend, there are a lot of different experiments going on. And we, yeah, we learn, we use that as a learning experience. So progress has been made, but solutions have yet to be found. As always, so wise, so wise. David, do you have any uh, any final thoughts on what we've been talking about today to kind of wrap things up? Well, I'll I'll just pick up your your question to Trafford. I mean, have we made progress with the ACA? And I, I think the the answer is absolutely. I mean, there's people are better able to access healthcare in the United States now than they were before the 2014 coverage expansions. So we've absolutely made progress on that front. There's still a lot of challenges. People's out-of-pocket spending on healthcare services is going up and up and up. I've got a new paper coming out about that in about four days. So look for that on the CommonwealthFund.org. I forget the name of the title of the paper, but we looked at data from the couple of different federal surveys, which track you know how much people report spending on both their insurance premiums and on their out-of-pocket costs. And uh, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag yet, but read the paper. And so there's still a lot of work to do. Healthcare quality is generally, you know, getting better, but that that trend seems to extend well beyond the the Affordable Care Act. Quality has been getting better for for decades, and so it's it's a little tougher to attribute that directly to the Affordable Care Act. But but yeah, I think we've made progress, uh, and I think there's still a long way to go. I like the teaser for the forthcoming paper. Yeah, Tuesday, and then and then since 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 I'm teasing things, June twelfth will be our next iteration of our state scorecard on health system performance. That's coming out June 12th, uh, I think June 12th. And coinciding with the launch of, of that or, or with the release of that report, we're launching a new data center at the Commonwealth Fund where you can download all of the data plus a whole lot of, you know, that we put into the scorecard plus a whole lot of data that we don't put into the scorecard. You know, it's be a, a big data center, you know, full of rich interactive uh 
data visualizations and, and features where you can really customize what you're looking at. So got to get my plug in. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to say, I guess, one final thing, and it goes back to the first point, is that I think that we've made progress too. And I just got the sense that a couple of years ago when the Trump folks came in, that they that was my sense then, that they just wanted to break stuff. And I don't think that's the case with the CMS administrator, Verma. She seems to be pretty competent in what she's doing. But it, it just, it can be frustrating when I feel like, yeah, we're making progress. And then, okay, we're going to take the, the ACA to the Supreme Court, if, if need be, to get this thing overturned on a technicality. It just can be frustrating. So with that, with that last comment, which who knows, I might edit that out. <laughs> appreciate you guys spending the time. This is uh, just like what we would be, have, maybe next time we'll do this over beers. Oh, I, I was having beers. Oh, okay. Well, good. I, I, I wasn't, but, but like I said, I've got one waiting for me. It is Sunday afternoon, so I, I've earned one. That's right. All right, guys. Thanks again. It's over and out. That's all for this week. From all of us at Darwin Research Group, thanks for listening. If you haven't yet done so, please rate and review Healthcare Rounds wherever you listen to podcasts. Healthcare Rounds is produced by Diana Nikolic and engineered by Andrew Rojek. Theme music by John Marchico. Darwin Research Group provides advanced market intelligence and in-depth customer insights to healthcare executives. Our strategic focus is on healthcare delivery systems and the global shift toward value-based care. To learn more about us, go to darwinresearch.com or send an email to insights at darwinresearch.com. Or if you'd like to get right to it, call us at 888-402-3465. See you next round.